Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Comedian Kathy Ladman says this. She says, all religions are the same. Religion is basically guilt with different holidays. The Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw says this. He says, there's only one religion, though there are hundreds of versions of it. To get, today we come to this section in the book of Ephesians where Paul is listing out a variety of different moral responsibilities that Christians have to one another. We're not to sin in our anger, but we're to reconcile our relationships. We're not to continue lying, but we're to tell the truth. We're not to steal, but we're to be gener generous people. We're not to put others down. We're to build one another up. But isn't it true that all of the major religions would support this kind of behavior? I mean, does this not just sound like something that's like, hey, do good things and not bad things? Wouldn't a follower of Islam say the exact same thing? Wouldn't a Buddhist or a Mormon or a secular human, humanist atheist tell you the exact same thing? Not to steal? Isn't this part of all different moral beliefs? And so what makes Christianity unique, my friends? What makes us unique? What makes us special? Why would we say that someone should be a Christian and not one of these other religions? Since people say that all religions are basically the same thing. Isn't this kind of supporting their claim? Well, I want to look at that. How is Christianity unique in our approach to morality? And I think that that's what this passage is leading us to, to evaluate, to consider. I think Paul's inviting us to consider how our morality is different from the rest of the world. And in order to do that, we have to actually go back one week. Last week, my brother Jeff uh, preached for us. And let me tell you, Jeff is one of the smartest people I know. And it's like he gave us an entire wedding cake of information baked down into the size of a cupcake. I mean, it was like dense, sweet goodness, but it was dense. 
and it had a lot of information in it. And I just need to go back and recap a little bit of what he did last week so that you can understand what Paul is doing this week. Because basically what Paul's doing this week is giving examples that apply what we learned last week in the passage right before this one. So let's look at that one again. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupting through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, and true righteousness and holiness. So Paul is telling us to take off the old self, to put off the old self, and to put on the new self. And this is the basic teaching of morality in the scriptures. I want to teach two implications of this passage. Two implications that Paul is giving us of putting off the old self to put on the new self. And the first implication of that is this, that morality is not the basis of our faith, but rather our morality is a byproduct of our faith. That's one way that our Christianity is different than all the other religions, and it's one way that Christianity uniquely teaches us how to be moral people, that we our morality is not actually the basis of our faith, but it is a byproduct of our faith. When you look at the other religions, if you want to become a, a Muslim, how do you become a Muslim? Well, you start following the five pillars of Islam. And if you want to become a, a, a Buddhist, how do you become a Buddhist? Well, there are five virtues or, or precepts that you must follow. And even if you want to become a good secular humanist atheist, what do you do? A, a, human secular, a, a secular humanist believes that all people are possible to do good. All people do good. And so what do you do if you're a secular humanist? Well, most of the time you become very progressive. Uh, you, you start calling yourself a, an anti-racist. You post on Facebook about immigration and vaccination. You compost and you, and you, uh, and you become a vegan. That's usually the, the path that that way goes. But no one would call you a secular humanist atheist. They might call you an atheist, but no one calls you a secular humanist if you're out there addicted to drugs and stealing from your neighbors to continue your drug ha habit. Because those are obviously the bad things to do and not the good things to do. But if you want to become a Christian, what do you do? Islam has the five pillars. Buddhism has the five precepts. What do you do? Modern society has Facebook posting. What do you do if you want to become a Christian? Nothing. That's the beauty of Christianity. You don't do anything. Christianity is the only religion that says that you don't do anything. It says that God has done it all. You see, the basis of our morality isn't that we are moral people so that God will love us. But it's that in history, God has sent his only son to bear the wrath of our sin, to pay for our misdeeds, and to live a completely righteous life, the life that none of us could live, but we all aspire to live and want to live. And he rose from the dead after paying for our sins, victorious over the grave. This is the good news of Christianity is it's not about what you do or cannot do. 
but it's about what Christ has done on our behalf. That he has done all the work for us. If you want to become a Christian, what do you do? You trust. You believe. You follow. You trust that that is enough for you. All other religions say, follow the rules so God will be happy with you. Christianity says, God is pleased with you based off of nothing that you have done. Jesus did it for you. Religion says, obey so that God will love you. Christianity says, God loves you, so obey. Because of this new position that you have in your relationship with God, we have a relational morality here. Because you have a new relationship in your relationship with God, you have a new reason to live a moral lifestyle. Christianity, Christian morality is not the basis of our faith, but a byproduct of our faith. When Paul calls us to put off the old self and to put on the new self, He's calling us to lean into a reality that has already been accomplished for us. Let me say that again. When Paul calls us to put off the old self, to put off the old deeds, to put off the old way of life, and to put on the new one, when he calls us to be more moral people, what he's actually calling us to do is not anything that's new, but he's calling us to lean into a reality that is already fully ours in Christ. Because when you trusted Christ, you were legally declared righteous. Let me break that down for you a little bit. You were legally declared righteous. It does not mean that you became righteous, but it means that in God's eyes, you were declared righteous. That he was satisfied with your life. It does not mean that you are embodying everything it means to be a little Christ, which is what the word Christian means. How many times, Christian, how many times, brother and sister, have you been at church or you were confronted about your faith and you just felt like a complete faker? Like, you're just not living up. Like, you are not doing all that God would have you do. Well, that is the message of Christianity, that you're not the person that you're supposed to be. Fakers welcome is, I think, the message that we have. Because none of us actually live out all the things we know the Scriptures say that we should do. The message of Christianity is that you're not the person you're supposed to be, but you've been legally declared righteous before God because of what Jesus has done. So when you put off the old man and put on the new man, you're taking off your, your natural sin desire inherited from Adam, and you're putting on the new nature that is given to you in Christ. And this is both an event and a progressive process. It is both an event. It has happened once in, in the past, but then it is a process that you lean into as you go. An illustration is going to help here. Um, the TV show Mad Men, if you were a fan of that show back in you know the early I don't know, sometime in the 2000s, in the past 10 years or so. There's a, the lead character in Mad Men is played by John Hamm. His name is Don Draper. And we don't learn this until much later. Spoiler alert, I guess. It's an old TV show now. Um, but Don Draper's real name is not Don Draper, but it is a, his name is Dick Whitman. And Dick Whitman has lived a very miserable, terrible life. Dick Whitman, uh, his, his mother was a prostitute. 
she died during childbirth. She, she was brought, he, he was brought into his father's home. His father's wife, for obvious reasons, did not care much for him. And so he lived a very hard and abusive life. And then his father died. So the only person who did care for him died. And he went with his father's wife who was kind of the stand-in mother in many ways, and, and she was remarried. And he just grew up in a very abusive home. His life was rough. And as many people do when they grow up in rough homes, he joined the military. And uh, not all people do, but that was like a way for him to get out of this background. Um, and uh, by joining the military, he kind of got a new beginning. And so he was stationed in Korea during the Korean War. And he was stationed in this platoon, and there was one other person in the entire, in the entire company that he was uh, stationed in. And it was a man named Don Draper. And Don Draper was everything that Dick Whitman was not. Don Draper had a college degree. He was an engineer. He was an officer in the military. Dick Whitman was an enlisted man in the military. Don Draper had a life that was somewhat put together. He had a wife. He was just serving out his time before he could go back home and, and restart his, his good life. Well, one day, while they're in the platoon, there's an explosion of some sort. And um, John Hamm's character, Dick Whitman, he survives. Um, I think he, he's concussed by it. But before he passes out and is found, uh, he discovers that his, his friend, Don Draper, has been completely killed by this. And he's beyond recognition. And what does Dick Whitman do? He goes over to Don Draper, and this is a bit of brilliance in some ways, and he takes off Don Draper's dog tag. And he takes off his own do uh, dog tag, and he swaps them. And now, Dick Whitman is dead, and he is Don Draper. The show continues to to show you how after the Korean War, when he goes home, he actually, everybody's calling him Don in the hospital. And he's a little shocked at first. But then he goes on, and he, he actually attends Dick Whitman's funeral from a distance. There weren't many people there. And he sees it, and it's the old man has died, and the new man has come. Now what has happened? It was both an event. At that moment, when he swapped those dog tags and no one caught him, he became Don Draper. He became a new man. But then he would go his, the rest of his life putting off those old habits of Dick Whitman and putting on, discovering what it means to live as a new man, as Don Draper. And in many ways, this is how we are to live with Christ. That our old person was dead. We saw the funeral, that baptism service. We were dead. And we've been risen to new life. We've taken on Christ. And as we take on Christ, we are fully declared covered by Jesus. But we continue to have to live our life to figure out what it means to be found in Christ for the rest of our lives. It is both an event and it is a progressive process that we have here of our morality. And the second thing that we need to take uh, from this putting off and putting on thing is that Christianity is unique in that we address the whole person, not merely their behavior. We address the whole person, not merely their behavior. You don't just take off the old sins and put on righteous behavior. 
You don't take off the old self, the old person, the old man, or you take off the old self, the old person, the old man. You take off this whole person. You put on a new self, not just new behavior. You put on a new identity. You are a new creation. You have a new reason for living. Your life is now hid with Christ. So let's look at the passage again, verse 22. He says, to put off your old self, but catch this, he says, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So your old life is corrupt. How is it corrupt? Through deceitful desires. You see, Paul says that we're not merely just people who do bad things. We are people who desire bad things. What motivates our behavior more than our desires? Nothing. Our loves, we love the wrong thing. And because we desire the wrong things, we behave in wrong ways. More on this in just a few minutes. Minutes. Verse 23, he says, And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You see, he's not just saying that it's behavior. He's not just saying change what you're doing and do, do better, be a better person. He's saying you, all, you have to change your desires. You have to address your desires. And not only do you have to address your desires, you have to address your mind. He says we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Sometimes wrong thinking leads to wrong morality is what he's saying. Christianity is not just a set of rules telling you right and wrong ways to behave. That would be mere behavior modification. But Christianity addresses our desires, our thinking, and our behavior. The 18th century uh, theologian, Jonathan Edwards, Massachusetts theologian, he went to Yale, president of Princeton, one of the first presidents of Princeton University. He wrote probably one of the greatest American books on anything in, in many ways. And many authors say this is one of the greatest theological books ever written called um, Religious Affections. And in Religious Affections, it is dense. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult book. But what he says in there is basically humans are not as simple as just people who do things, but we're made up of desires, our heart. We're made up of thoughts in our mind, and we're made up of, of will which is like um, our ability to do things, our, our power to, to power through. And you have to address all three. You can't just address one when you're talking about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. So behavior change comes through whole life transformation in Christianity, not just conformation to some set of moral principles. Let me give you a few practical examples of how this works. And this is actually what this sermon is on. So uh, I guess that was the longest introduction of all time because now we're getting to the text uh, that we uh, read originally when we looked at it because what Paul is doing in verse 25 is he says, therefore, and then he gives us examples of how we're to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And so let's walk through just a couple of these examples. I'm actually not going to walk through every single one, although I would love to, but I feel like time will constrain us. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, this is more complicated than him just saying, stop lying. Because, first of all, he uses this word falsehood. And falsehood, it certainly means lying. He, he's saying, put off falsehood. And it certainly means stop telling 
people lies, but falsehood has a broader uh, semantical range than that. Falsehood can mean withholding truth that leads others to think more highly of you. Falsehood can mean um, bending the truth. And so we have to put off that old man. We have to put off that man that says, I live and die based upon how you view me. And so I care so much about what you think of me at this moment or what happens to me if I told the truth. I care so much about that that I'm willing to bend the truth, withhold the truth. I'm willing to walk in falsehood, which is this past way of life. And what he says is when you put on the new man, you're saying, I've been declared righteous in Christ. And it gives me courage to speak truth, to not be someone who walks in falsehood, who is not afraid of everyone's opinions. You see, this is what he's calling us to do, to take off the old man and to put on the new man. And as if we needed more motivation, he actually gives us another rationale. He says, for we are members of one another. And I love the way that John Christendom puts this, the, the, cha- the church father. He says, if the eye sees a serpent, does it deceive the foot? <laughs> the eye sees a serpent. Does it deceive the foot? And you say, no, that's not a serpent. If the tongue tastes what is bitter, does it deceive the stomach? Lying is a gross hindrance to the proper functioning of the body. Think about what you're doing when you speak in falsehood to the church. You're hurting. You're hurting us all, not just yourself. The second example that Paul gives, and this is one that we're going to camp out on before we we close up. He gives this one. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, I don't know about you, but rarely do I feel angry and do not sin. Anger and sin go hand in hand with me. Those things are oftentimes right there together. And what Paul is actually doing is he's inviting us to consider our anger. He's inviting us to examine our anger and to put off the sinful anger. As I said earlier, there's nothing that controls your behavior more than the things that you love. And there's nothing that reveals what you love more than what makes you angry. If I meet someone who feels very angry to me, that they're angry about everything, they're an outrage machine, I am meeting someone who deeply loves. Because what anger does is anger is saying that matters and it is threatened. You see, our anger reflects our loves. It's not as simple as just anger. David Powelson defines it in this way. He says that anger is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. There are all kinds of angers. And I think that when we talk about anger, a lot of you are getting a, you're you're using your get out of jail free card right now. Because a lot of you are of the type of people who aren't the explosive kind of angry. You're not people that blow up. But anger takes lots of different forms. There's three general ways that people handle anger. And the first is they explode. And we all know some exploders in our life. Maybe you are an exploder. I probably lean into explosion more than I would the other two methods of anger. 
But there are other ways to be angry. And there are other people who simmer. And it's not just that, that explosion that's wrong. That's what it feels so wrong to us. But friends, like simmering, anger, it's anger. And, and when you simmer, a lot of times you're avoiding. And so you might not be exploding, but our anger is oftentimes reflected in our avoiding. And our anger is reflected in our placating. So you're not exploding to get your way. You're also not avoiding the circumstance completely. You're just giving the other person what they want. And you feel angry about it, but you wouldn't, it wouldn't look like the way that other people feel angry about it. David Powelson, again, he says like this, quiet brooding, defensive withdrawal, judgmental thoughts, low-grade irritability, a critical attitude, avoiding outright conflict, indifference to repairable wrongs. These are just less dramatic brands of an anger problem. And that's what we all have is an anger problem. A lot of times we think about anger as being something that happens to us, that is outside of our control, that we need to manage it we talk about anger, we personify it, and we talk about it. It lives within me. I couldn't control it. I need to manage my anger. But friends, anger is not something that you just manage. It's not just this creature that lives within you. You do anger. Anger is something that you do. It's part of you. And so what Paul is trying to do is he's giving us this excellent case study for what it means to put off the old self and put on the new self. When he tells us, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. So there is this kind of anger that is not sinful, but it is rare, because when you look at the entire entirety of Scripture, what does the Scripture say about anger? It has a lot to say about anger. And first of all, one of the main characteristics of God in the Scriptures is that he is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Now, if anger is always good, there would be no reason for God to be slow to anger. If it's always bad, God could not be slow to anger because it doesn't say that he doesn't become angry. You see, it is important that we're slow to anger, though. I love the way that James says this about anger. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So consider your anger, my friends. What is it saying about you? Is it actually righteous anger? Or is it reflecting more that's going on about your desires in your heart? Are we holding on to anger or nursing anger in our thought lives? Because when we nurse our anger, what do we do? The scripture says that when you do not let go of it, and when you not, do not deal with it, you give an opportunity to the devil. I think that's really important here, that when anger goes unchecked, you give opportunity to the devil, that he finds his way into your thought life. So how do you put off your anger? Well, that's really hard. Have you ever been angry about something? You just come back to it in your mind over and over again, and you're just reminded, I'm right and they're wrong. And how do you deal with that? It's hard to stop thinking about that thing. You can't simply 
empty your mind, but to put off the old man that's easily angered, you have to look at what the anger is teaching you about yourself and your loves. Let me give you another illustration personally, one that I was dealing with even this morning. I was in a group email, uh, and it was a group email that made me angry. Has anybody ever gotten a group email that's made you angry? Yeah, that's happened a few times. And why did it make me angry? But it felt like some people in the group were being a little judgy toward other people in the group over something that I feel like I got a pretty good handle on. And so I just felt that it wasn't personal. It was a big group. It wasn't a personal attack, but I felt personally attacked in this email. And I just got so angry and it just continued the the email chain just went on for a couple days and so it just dug it up every time and I would complain about it to Megan and uh, here's what I would do I would do these mental gymnastics of what can I say to outwit this person so that I look like the smart one so that I look like the the one who's not an idiot and I make them look like an idiot I'll show them I'll just flip it around on them but then when I do a little deeper of like, okay, why am I actually angry here? (laughs) What is this revealing about my desires? And I think one of the things that it reveals is that I want to be seen as someone who is respectable. I want to be seen as someone who is smart. And the implications of this email chain made me think that these people don't see me as smart and respectable. But what do I care what they think about me? I mean, I do, on one hand, but isn't it more important that I just am smart and respectable rather than I want them to know that I'm smart and respectable? I can't, I can't control the way that they think about me. And when I try to put my hands there and control it, I'm taking the role of God in many ways, and that has disastrous effects. And so in this case, for me to be angry and do not sin is for me to not even give this a moment in my mind to imagine all the ways that I'm going to make them regret what they're saying here. Because I don't need to. This isn't an email that I have to respond to. I cannot let the sun, the sun go down on that anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So I get the email. I process it. I have to evaluate it. And actually, because I don't need to confront anyone, <laughs> I actually just kind of need to put it to death. I need to bury that with the old, old man and live in the new man who God approves of me even when these people don't, which is the new man that's there. And that is a, a constant wrestling. It's a constant putting off and putting on. It's, it's an active thing. It's not something that I do passively. I have to step into my anger. I have to interrupt my anger and say, That's reflecting an old way of life that says that you live and die based upon how other people feel about you. And you are now a new person. I have to put off the sinful anger. And actually, what do I do? Because I still feel displeased, but I think that it, it makes anger productive when I swap it from anger and justice and my wrath that they'll experience to active mercy. It can become an active displeasure of mercy. And so when I feel that displeasure (laughs) that I have in my heart because I feel so judged, I choose mercy and love just as God does with me. 
That's my case study with anger, and you might have one that's similar or, or something that goes with it. But Paul lists off even more illustrations that I don't have time to, to cover sufficiently in this text. He, he tells us to put off stealing and to put on generosity. He says, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I love that. He says that it's not only that you need to stop stealing things. That's not enough to just stop doing that. He says that the way you view money has to completely change, and now your money is not just something that you take from other people for yourself, but it is something that you have for yourself and you give to other people. He flips it on its head. You become a generous person. It's amazing, beautiful what it means to put on the new person there. And lastly, he tells us to put off put-downs and put on encouragement. Such a challenging text here. How many relationships do we have with friends and, and family where there's just like a, a snarky, sn snappy uh, speaking that does not look like the new man? He says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Our language says a great deal about our character. What your tongue says, my friends, is important. Because out of the mouth speaks the heart. I wish I had more time to dive into all of that. So much to say. What makes Christianity unique, though? Is it not, it, it's not just a, a, a new way of living. It is a new way of humanity. We worship a God who gets into the grit along with us. Jesus Christ did not come with pointy fingers, but with open arms. And he comes with this invitation Come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christianity invites us off the treadmill of success and into the joys of the new humanity. And we're reminded of what Christ has done each week as we participate in a sacred meal, which is a communion meal. And in this meal, the, the, we take the bread and we say, Christ's body is broken for me broken for us collectively. And we take the, the juice and we say that Christ's blood has been shed for me. And it's a physical reminder of what he's done. And we do this until he returns, knowing that he will return. And if you're not a Christian here with us today, we would invite you to receive the good news of Jesus today, that you're not defined anymore by that old man, that there's a new way of life, there's a new humanity available to you. We invite you into the new humanity. Join with us in that. And you can be reminded of that. And you can participate in the communion meal along with us next week. So the way that we do communion here is we, um, over the next song, I'll lead us through the, the parts of communion. So um, I'm going to pray as we stand, and the band makes their way up here so that we can continue in this song. Father, we, we pray that you will... Help us to, t to put off the old man and to put on the new man, that you'll help us to see 
the unique calling of what it means to be little Christ, what it means to follow after you, what it means to be covered by your blood and loved completely by you. And so, Father, as we respond to your word this morning, fill our hearts, convict us with where we need to be convicted, but comfort us with the good news of the gospel that we can never live up, but that is not the point, that you have done it all for us. So, God, we, we worship you, and we praise you for that. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.